I'm William Thomas, a producer at Empathetic Machines. In this series of podcasts, we explore the concept of mission. More specifically, we explore why people get committed to a mission-driven business. Figuring out how to deliver profits to shareholders and owners is hard enough. Why would people get involved in a business that has goals extending beyond this? What is it about these people that developed the focus on a societal or some other sort of benefit? We produce these podcasts with a company called Andorage, a distinctively mission-driven company. The Andorage website states that the company is all about reinventing wellness. The company develops CBD-rich, full cannabis flower extracts. So that's the mission, reinventing wellness. Each podcast will show how one individual came to this mission. Now, these individuals are influenced by big events like the Civil Rights Movement, the HIV-AIDS epidemic, 9-11. Big events, however, only provide a backdrop. What's interesting here is how life events accumulate over time to form this mission commitment. I think you really enjoyed the stories. A quick final note before we get started. For compelling stories, come here to Empathetic Machines. For medical advice, consult an expert. Consult your doctor. This is not a medical advice show. Thank you for joining us for the wrap-up of our five-part series exploring why people get involved in missions. When they do, they exhibit a kind of faith that leads them to undertake goals beyond profits and market share. Now, the other podcasts in this series were one-on-one interviews with leaders and others who've undertaken the mission of a company called Andorage. Those of you who've had a chance to listen to those podcasts know, I hope you'll agree, they're great stories. Each one details a distinct American life with twists and turns, Struggles and resolutions, spills and chills. If you haven't listened, you really should. Today we're going to shake the format up a bit, though, with a roundtable discussion. Now let's get to the elephant in the room. Each of these lives comes to an impassioned position on the therapeutic potential and reality of cannabis to reimagine wellness. Each story gets there via a different set of personal experiences, but in the backdrop are political, financial, and historical forces. Today we're going to sum it up, or try to. So let's get started. With me today, I have Isaac Foster, the chief executive of Andorage, and Jim Tacono, a customer of Andorage, and one other person. I'd like to introduce Chris Lundwall. With 30 years of experience in startups, sales and marketing leadership roles for the Global 2000, Chris is an impressive guy. Now, 20 years ago, Chris and I gigged together on a team that provided strategic direction to some of the world's most advanced companies. And we probably should make a show sometime about the intense four-day drive he and I took across country following 9-11. But suffice it to say, I got to know this guy pretty well. We, we recently caught up after a many-year gap, and it was clear he'd been inspired by something. Now, when I had known Chris before, he was a practicing Mormon. So, so I felt a bit of a jolt when I learned that Chris had been inspired by the therapeutic value of cannabis and had joined Andras as their chief revenue officer. Chris, over to you. That's a great intro. Uh, brings back a lot of great memories. I, I am thrilled to be here my my intrigue translated into real passion several years ago when I was starting a company and one of the members of our team, a startup who had, had been clean for a couple of years, had a relapse and he had been brought into this opioid crisis as a teenager by virtue of having some migraines and some prescriptions that just took a hold of his, his life and ruined it. And then he got it back. And so I remember about 2 a.m. on a Friday night, him being taken away from his home in an ambulance after having after having a relapse. And I remember wondering what could we do for him. And I remember researching and finding that that the the options that he had were all Western medicine. And you fast forward a little bit, and here I get this opportunity to meet people like Isaac and to be invited to join this industry that has a non-Western or a functional approach to helping not only people like my associate, but people with pain, people who have anxiety issues and are looking for for options and for alternatives that really, really work that don't have painful side effects. And so the caveat there is, wow, things are going to be great. And then we find out in this industry that we are besieged by an epidemic of mislabeling and misinformation that is the confluence of lack of regulation, but the insistence by, I, I think, the, the, the population at large that we need something better, we need something 
that's medicinal. We need something that doesn't have harsh side effects and we need to get people to focus on their health. So, you know, here I am, I'm happy to be here. And I, I believe with my whole soul that I'm with the best team and the best product and the best company that, that's on the planet today. Chris, that's a, it's <laughs> a powerful story. This, this company is full of such powerful stories. I got to say though, Isaac, when you and I spoke, I, I feel like no one gives the context better than you. Would you mind giving us some context before we dive into some of the details here? To be clear, we can't claim that cannabis has medicinal value. In fact, right now, the FDA's opinion and legal stance is that cannabinoids are not safe for human consumption, that there's not enough research to show that they're safe. On the other hand, if you look at the DEA drug abuse report for 2020, they talk about how widely abused marijuana is, which is cannabis and how there's been no deaths attributed to an overdose of it. In fact, there's never been a death attributable to marijuana use in any amount or of any form. And actually, more people die each year from an overdose of water. That's not a joke. More people die from an overdose of water each year than they do from a marijuana overdose. And so that really begs the question, why such a strong position? Right. We know that people have been widely using cannabis for thousands of years. So why a position that it's not safe and that it's not medicinal? Well, if you look at it, a lot of the, the friction comes from the origins of the prohibition of marijuana. And another part of it comes from the legal definition of medicine. The FDA has, in fact, done an amazing job in setting up a system that keeps poisons out of the way of harming people. And that's because most of the time when a medicine is researched, you try to identify a specific molecule that has some level of activity, and that molecule has never been tried in a concentrated form in humans before. And so you really do need a vigorous process, but that process also protects us from things that it doesn't need to. And so when you look at the confluence of systems, we've got a political system. If you study the prohibition of marijuana, and it becomes fairly obvious that there were some rather large commercial interests that invested a tremendous amount of capital and lobbying and removing cannabis from the ecosystem. It's also interesting to note that the AMA, back at the time that this was being reviewed in Congress, testified and vigorously fought against the removal of cannabis as medicine, but as we know, they failed. And so you've got these old politics, you've got public opinion that's been carefully crafted over time. And then you also have this big issue of an overhang of healthcare costs. I mean, it, it's another common topic that we deal with. If you, if you look at it right now, our current GDP percentage attributable to healthcare is just absolutely not sustainable. And so it needs to shrink and it's, it has to happen in a way that's going to be beneficial to people, right? We're not talking about people having a lower quality, but we've got to shrink the healthcare costs and it's, I've rambled on here. It's not a ramble at all. That's this exactly the context we need. Let's fast forward a little bit. Chris, I, I believe you get this question about favorite CBD brands. Yeah. We do. And what, I mean, how do you, how do you differentiate between them? Is this is some sort of standard or something we can apply? We get this question all the time. You know, our sales team, are, our team is out there meeting with clinicians every single day, consulting, helping people understand the difference between Entourage and what we call the clinician grade standard and the other products that are out there. We all know that there's been a ton of investment, especially since the farm bill in terms of big brands and new companies, et cetera. And we, we talk about this perfect storm of, you know, companies making claims in spite of the fact the FDA says they shouldn't. We've got this surge, this tectonic surge of new research articles and, and, and other articles that, that tell us this is real. This is really happening. And it's, it's not aloe vera. This is something that fundamentally uh, our bodies and this plant have come together to balance us from a systemic perspective into health. I know I'm answering it a long way, but it's a big yes. People want to know what's different. And so the easiest way to help people understand is to introduce them to the clinician grade standard, which has, which has three requirements. 
the first requirement has to do with making sure that a, a company is sourcing uh, female hemp flower, not the entire plant. The second is to make sure that they are fully transparent with all six tests on the label before somebody buys a product and that they pass those tests and the active ingredients in that bottle are on the label. And then finally, this it's got to be a full spectrum plant. There's a lot of talk about isolates, and that's really all it should be, in my opinion, is talk. There, there's an argument that there's a role for isolates, but I think that role has more to do with the fact that in the United States, you can only patent a single compound uh, product rather than a multi-compound product. So it makes the whole medicine of this flower a little bit off limits from a patenting perspective. And so you look at these three components and when we sit down with clinicians and we train them on, on how to use this measurement as they evaluate different brands that are brought to them by their patients, they sit back and they, they really come to this, this understanding that the message out there is that if you, you can't test it, you can't trust it. And, and, and because clinicians are scientists, they understand that premise and they really gravitate toward it. But at the same time, there's a host of really bad actors out there. And there's data that tells us in recent studies. The University of Penn, a couple of years ago, did a study on how accurate labels are in the CBD industry. And just last year, there was more research that came out from Leafly. And when you really applied the same standard to that Leafly study, you find out there were almost 90%, 87% of the products out there are not labeled correctly. And so to Isaac's point, we have a safety epidemic as it relates to CBD. And then in the absence of the FDA taking a stronger stance on a regulatory perspective, it's incumbent upon us to help clinicians and, and patients like Jim Taconio, who you spoke with, really understand how to evaluate uh, the different products that are out there. So, so I appreciate the passion. Let's, let's break it down a little bit. We can, ask, we can ask for the order again at the end, as it were. Sourcing the flower, what, what else might you get? What else goes into these, but what else happens? It's not the flower. Right? Again, on the conversations I had, all of the entourage leaders, clinicians, and, and Jim, the customer, was, was pretty clear that it should only be the flower. I, what, what's, what else? Well, not much. You know, the, the best, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Isaac to really address that as well, because he has so much experience actually in the field, certainly more so than I do. But at the end of the day, if, if you're harvesting, if you like orange juice and you buy orange juice that's harvested from the entire tree in addition to the fruit, you're probably going to get a few splinters in your gums. And, and I know that's a little bit graphic, uh, but at the same time, if you're, if you're buying product that's harvested from grinding the entire plant, roots, stems, the fiber, et cetera, instead of just harvesting the, the fruit as it were or the flower, you're looking at a, a company that's taking shortcuts. You're looking at a company that's not focused on the chemistry and certainly the, in our argument, the, the efficacy of the ultimate product. But Isaac, you probably have some additional comments on that. I mean, yeah, I think if you ask your average layperson, what is hemp? and what part of the plant contains the cannabinoids, I'd be willing to bet that 99% of them would say, I have no idea. The hemp is a plant. It's the whole plant. The people, people in industry understand that the only part of the plant that has any cannabinoids or any of the ingredients that we're looking for is actually the flower of the female plant. And so that really matters if you're going to make a product. Just as Chris said, if you want orange juice, it's only the peeled fruit of the plant that you're trying to make the juice from. And as crazy as it sounds, 95% of the people that have jumped into the CBD industry, um, they don't even know that. What they know is they can grow hemp in a field, they can harvest the plants, cutting them down right at the roots, and then they can use an extraction process that makes something they can put in a bottle. And I know it sounds dystopian and crazy, but that's really the fact behind how most of these products are made. There are people who are cultivating cannabis or, or hemp for the first time in their lives. And while they may be very experienced farmers, they don't actually know anything about cannabis. So they're just cutting it down, grinding up the whole plant, throwing it into an extraction process. And that's not how you make products if you're trying to make them rich 
in cannabinoids and terpenes. And then part of the, the byproduct of that, when you make it just by grinding up the whole plant, is it doesn't taste good. And so they add flavoring. And then, you know, it doesn't look like it's the right color. So they, they add some coloring to it. Instead of starting out with the right ingredient and making the right product, they kind of end up with this, this hodgepodge and then add things to it to try to make it work. In most industries, they would never be able to make these products because nobody would buy them. Anybody who works in marijuana or so, you know, the, the THC side of the business, they all know this. They, they don't make products like this. To them, if you, were ever to, if you were ever to go to somebody who works in recreational marijuana and say, hey, I've got this great idea. I'm going to cut, you know, these plants down and put the root and I'm going to, you know, turn that into a product. They would be disgusted. And in fact, so are we when we see how most of our competitors make their product. They would never buy it or consume it, right? So what we have is we have this whole unregulated industry with first-time participants selling to customers who don't know what, you, what they're buying. It's, it's bizarre. The first step of our process in determining a good product is to make sure that it's exclusively made from female hemp flower. If you're looking at a product and the package doesn't say that, and the company's not pointing that out to you or, or proud of that fact, it probably means that they don't know. And if they don't know how to make good products, you definitely shouldn't be purchasing products from them. Isaac, is, is it only ignorance or is there a margin impact here too? I mean, is there a sort of a, a perverse business logic too? So, from the perspective of making products, right, it is definitely much easier and much cheaper to do large scale grows um, that are uh, mixed gender, right? So males and females, because when, you, when you're doing it correctly, you only want to cultivate females. And that's, that's a lot more expensive, a lot more work. But so if you have both genders in the field and then for processing, you just drive through and cut everything down and throw it all into a grinder. I mean, again, using the orange juice analogy, it's definitely much easier to make orange juice if nobody cares about the end product to simply go through an orange grove, cut down all the trees, throw it into a wood chipper, and then throw you know the, the stuff from the wood chipper into some extraction machine. And so that's what they do with hemp. You know, it, it's, it's, I'm just pausing because it, it's, it's absolutely not the way to make these products, regardless of the economics. I think also, uh, William, uh, even, uh, you know, we, we, you start with the soil, you start with the plant. And, and to Isaac's point, this, this plant is different. And you might say, well, it's got flowers, it's got stems, it's got roots, it's a plant. And I think that largely industrial agriculture has decided that. You look at the conversion of these massive tobacco farms into hemp, and and in their mind, it's just simple math, but it's really not simple math because you have to understand that the hemp plant is an aggregator. It is a plant that pulls, it cleans the soil. It pulls everything out of the soil. You start with rich, black, nutritious soil, you're going to get excellent fruit or flower. If you start with soil that's been saturated with pesticides largely unregulated for decades, you're not going to get a rich, clean flower. So again, is everyone's IQ getting better as it relates to the agriculture of this plant? Yes. But, but again, uninformed growers uh, who don't have the expertise that Isaac's talking about are literally creating problems that they're largely unaware of. All right. So just one, one little question for me about gender. G girls are better than boys, Isaac. You've started down this path, but is this all four of the folks I talked to underscored this point? It's really simple. So CBD is a cannabinoid, right? And the only part of the hemp plant that makes any cannabinoids is the female flower. And that's because hemp plants are pollinated through airborne pollination. So you have the male plants and you have the female plants. The male plants make flowers that make pollen. Now the pollen has no cannabinoids in it whatsoever. And the male plant releases its pollen into the air and the female plant 
creates a very sticky resin to try and catch that pollen. And that's how they become pollinated. So you have the males that make a, a, uh, a pollen and you have the females that make a re resin to catch the pollen. And the CBD and the THC and all of the cannabinoids that, that are unique to this plant and the bulk of the terpenes that we're interested in are made, they're part of that resin that the female is making to catch the pollen. So if you have a male plant, you've got absolutely no cannabinoid. And if you're trying to make a CBD product from a male plant, you know, you're kind of wasting your time. And, and that's really the key. It, it has to be female flower because in, in the biology of the plant, that is the only place where cannabinoids come from. Cultivating female flower is much more complicated and much more expensive, but this is the practice that has always been done for marijuana because male flowers don't have any intoxicating benefits and allowing males in the same fields as the females only gets the females pollinated and then it significantly reduces your yield. And so in order to grow it appropriately, first, you need to row crop. You, you can't just throw seeds out into a field and have them grow wild because you need access to all of the plants, each and every one of them. And human beings need to go through and in inspect them because when you do female only, some of the females can in fact hermaphrodite and turn into a male in order to pollinate the field. To be successful, you need people that are experienced in observing this process before it's too late because they have to see that happening and remove the plants from the crop. And that's why marijuana traditionally has been cultivated in much smaller grows. An acre of marijuana would be a ginormous grow, especially because most states won't let you grow more than an acre. And so when you have somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, and then they scale to like a thousand acre grow because they think that's going to be cheaper. There's no way for them to be successful in that part of it. They just figure, oh, it's easy, right? We'll have some material in this crop and I'll get what I get out of it. And I don't have to walk the fields and I don't have to deal with it. And it, you know, it, it's really indicative of not understanding that your target ingredient is exclusively developed in the, the female flower of the plant. It leads to other issues like, you know, how do you deal with infestations? How do you fertilize your plants? All of that stuff for people who have been doing it for their whole lives, they know how to do that. And because they have all developed that skill in the black market, the truth of the matter is all of the people who are truly experienced cannabis growers in the world right now today, learn their craft in the black market. In order for them to have done that, they were criminals. And just because it's now become legal doesn't mean that people can immediately learn skills that have taken people tens, if not 20, 20 years to learn. In fact, many of, of the, the better farmers are second and third generation and learn their craft from their parents and grandparents. I mean, if you and I decided tomorrow morning that we're going to be structural engineers and we're going to start putting up buildings without going to college and getting the school and the education and working in the industry, we just don't have the skills. And what people don't realize is to cultivate correctly meaning you can't use chemical pesticides. You can't use chemical nutrients that you want females only. This is a real skill. And just because people were, were criminals in the past and now they're not, also doesn't mean that their knowledge is available online or in a college course or in a book that you can buy on Amazon. And it's not like you can run a successful thousand acre grow just by Googling as you go. So it's just, it's really, we can't underestimate the level of skill required just on the cultivation side to create quality input material. And without having the quality input material, you just can't make a great product. 
what I have come to understand is that hemp is a crop has been throughout history used for many other things. And it's not as if the rest of the plant isn't valuable and useful and doesn't have a long history of being useful. Tell me about the rest of the plant. So in America, we have a very, very long history. And in fact, the Declaration of Independence, our Declaration of Independence is written on hemp. Hemp was how we originally paid taxes to the crown when the United States was settled. All of hemp is directly related to cannabis, right? You're familiar with cannabis. Cannabis actually comes from the word cannabis in Arabic. And so all of the sails, all of the ropes, all of those parts of the ships, the covered wagons, all of that was made out of hemp. And so if you look at our history of settling the West, all those covered wagons, all the people settling large tracts and, and farming it, all of those farms grew hemp. And that's why when you look at the, the, the memorabilia from, from this country's history, you find examples of hemp spinning wheels everywhere. When you were in the middle of the plains and you're setting up your, your pioneering the West and you need textiles, you need clothing, you can't just pick up the Sears and Roebuck catalog. I mean, that's how Sears started, but they weren't there when the West was settled. And there definitely wasn't an Amazon. You couldn't go to a local store. You had to be able to make everything that you needed on your own property. And the way that everybody did that was with hemp. Not only could you make all the textiles, ropes, and other materials that you needed from it, you could also feed your cattle with it. And, and in addition to all that, we've lost this rich history. Henry Ford's first cars were actually made out of hemp. Because we had technologies back then that unfortunately had been lost, but we were able to make materials that were 20 times stronger than steel. And not only were his cars made out of hemp, they ran on hemp fuel because he made biodiesel from it. So the use of the plant is broad and it is incredibly easy to grow at scale if you're trying to do it for fibers and other components. And it's also very high in protein, which is why it's good for animal feed. And it was all of these different uses that made it abundant until we had certain economic powers that wanted to capture those markets and they were able to do so through legislative control, right? And like back then, we didn't have CNN. We didn't have, we, your average American citizen had no idea what laws were being passed, who was spending money to lobby for them. And so it was possible back then for very wealthy people with large amounts of money to get things done in the back rooms. And, you know, th first of all, this is not a conspiracy theory, right? If you just do a little bit of searching on the internet, all this has come out, it's all documented, it's all considered known. And in, in, in fact, there's government sources for all of this. To add to that, the lumber lobby and the cotton lobby were extremely powerful back then, as was the chemical lobby. And uh, when you compare hemp as a crop to cotton, it's much better for the soil, for the environment, and to Isaac's point, the yield based on the different components of the plant is, is extraordinary. Back in that day as well, you had you had Hearst, you had an emerging publication industry who were creating paper from lumber. Hindsight's 2020, but even back then, people understood that hemp was a better way to make paper than lumber, but uh, big business had its way back then, and uh, it was to the detriment of this crop. I see a future discussion we can have around the structure of the U.S. Uh, political ec economic system and the, the way that lobbying has shifted over time, but I think that's not for today. So what I understand is there's science and history behind the proper way to use this. We've talked about the role of regulation for pushing it off of the mainstream. Let, let's talk a bit about what, what regulation might do. Chris, you mentioned the six tests. And there's a sort of amount of transparency around testing that it, it would seem would improve this market. Is there a place to start that conversation? I mean, is, is it just publishing certificates or what, what's the right way to get that started? Well, the testing's got to be so rigorous and there are the, the rigor is a minimum. It's not easy, but it's required to get to these six tests. William, there's, there's four tests that we call the safety tests. And those measure solvents, they measure microbials, things like mold, 
they measure heavy metals and they measure pesticides. And then we, the quality tests that we refer to and that we require have to do with cannabinoids and the terpenes. And those tests to a large degree are designed to address the shortcuts that can be taken in that sourcing process that we just discussed. And those can I just tests- cut into, you mean, you mean untested cannabinoids, if they're used, I could be drinking strontium or lead, or I could be putting mold into my body. I just want to be, well, that's a bit dry, but to be really clear, is that what you're t- saying? Well, I think you're being raw and I think you're being candid and you're exactly right. Most of the companies out there today, and I don't, I don't mean 20%, I mean, I mean 90% of these companies out there today are not publishing tests. They're not attaching them to the label. They're not creating QR codes. The shortcuts that they're taking, if they do proclaim that they're taking tests, will be to take one test or two tests, but not to publish six tests. It's an environment of, it's a menagerie, if you will, that's really quite harmful and has a lot of risk. And if they're not meeting a clinician grade standard by publishing all six tests and active ingredients on the label, and I mean independent tests, I don't mean take your own test and publish it, I mean independent tests, then they are literally leading consumers to a place that's potentially very unhealthy and we believe harmful. So Jim, part of the story that you shared with me was this growing realization that something needed to be done differently for your health, but also a growing appreciation. These are my words, not yours. But this growing appreciation of the ways in which to infuse cannabinoids into into your health. Were you aware of the things that Chris is talking about or how did you become aware of them? For the last, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes, I've been silent, just like in shock that I stumbled through this whole cannabis world. Uh, not knowing that hemp was not tested to the same level as marijuana. That is the what I came into about three or four years ago when I came to Colorado and I started exploring CBD. I was under the impression that they were roughly the same, that they were tested the same. And I find out later they weren't. But what happened to me when it was when I first came across the company here in Colorado called uh, Realm of Caring, they just basically said to me, when you're looking for companies, make sure that you can hunt down their testing. But I didn't know really what I was looking for, as in what is is the testing? And they didn't, at that time, this is four years ago, maybe they've changed since then. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But I didn't know really what I was doing. So I just, on my own, from my own experience from working in uh, laboratory sciences and med techs and working for FDA companies and pharmaceutical companies, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was getting in my body. The biggest worry I was concerned was was the cannabinoid profile. How much CBD did it have in it? But as I learned over the last couple of months, literally, I did not know that all those heavy metals weren't being tested and all those things weren't really there. And actually, the, basically, the conversation happened one day. Chris, we're coming off the tennis courts and he just said, you know, you should look into a company called Enraj. They test more. You should look into it. That's all it was. And then when I started looking into their, their product and other products, I was able to hunt down laboratory results on the website. And I not only in-house, I can get the third party and compare them. You can see them cross right over. And that's when I started to really think about the importance of what was in my product what do I need? What's not in my product? That was just equally as important to me. And between my process, I was really important for me to make sure that I could find products that had full spectrum. Because basically the conversation Chris came to me, he says, Hey, Jim, did you know a lot of companies are just putting the word full spectrum on there? And then that's when I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) I just assumed everything was regulated to some level, but I didn't realize it at that time. And I think that's when things really changed for me to know that I needed something more than what I was getting. So independent testing is the norm in marijuana. Every state that has a legal recreation or medical marijuana program typically requires independent third-party testing of those products. And so because it's standard, we always use it not only in our R&D, but also in our products. And because there's established entities that you can go to and simply pay per test, it would never make sense for us to invest the millions of dollars in test equipment 
that would it would take for us to do it on our own. So previously you asked, is there an economic incentive for why somebody might not cultivate the right way? What I can tell you is there is absolutely no economic incentive if you're making products that will pass to test it on your own. So anytime I see somebody who is testing on their own, not using third parties, it raises a huge red flag. Why would they spend the million plus dollars on having the equipment and not using a third party when you can very inexpensively outsource your testing, which will also prove to everybody else in the world that these are independent tests and they really do pass. So one thing I want to clear up is this. Everybody will talk about a COA, a certificate of analysis, right? And it, they talk about it like it's a defined term that always means the same thing. And what I'd like to put forth is that the word COA is similar to like saying degree. You can run around and you say, I have a degree. Great. So you have a degree. Where is it? What is it for? And so you have like degrees that you made when you were in kindergarten class with a crayon drawing on a table and, you know, you put whatever you wanted on it. And then there are people who have advanced degrees from, you know, Harvard and, and other well-respected institutions. And so degree has various uh, levels of scrutiny. And so what I'd like to introduce is the concept that COAs have different levels of scrutiny. And so that's why I say when, when somebody says I have a COA, you actually have to look at it. And unfortunately, you also need to be able to, to read it a bit because first, you want to make sure that it's from a third party, not something that they just generated in-house and put a stamp on. And you also want to make sure it's not just a, a piece of paper with the word COA on it and a bunch of symbols and numbers that don't make any sense. The other benefit when using a third party is you want the contact information there so that if you ever wanted to, you could call that testing facility and say, hey, I have a test from your facility for XYZ brand, and these are the results. Did you guys do this test? Are they accurate? Are they true? It's that level of being able to do d diligence that is so vital and important, and it is crucial that they not only be third party, but that they be tied to the specific batch of product that you're purchasing. Now, it sounds so simple, and it is so confusing that people can make the issue confusing on purpose because the truth is a lot of people would fail these tests, and that would be economically catastrophic for them, potentially. And so they would rather forge a test than deal with the reality of failing. But so how hard is the testing, uh, gentlemen? I mean, is it possible to test yourself? I guess that would be unusual for any other consumer good, but is that the right path or is there a better way? You know, you know William, you know, 30 years ago, mercury was the, was the product of choice as far as fillings for dentistry, right? I don't want to wax cross generations too much here, but that's the way it was. And when people got fillings, sent their kids in to get fillings for cavities, there weren't a lot of questions about, well, can I have the certificate of analysis on the particular mercury you're using today, doctor? It was just universal. We didn't ask questions. We trusted. And now you know, today, I don't think there's anyone who would argue um, that mercury in someone's mouth is a really, really bad thing. And so we were kind of at that stage right now where there are a lot of and again, I'm not insinuating any malevolence by the dentists at all. I'm just saying that we as a nation and we as people have become much more curious, much more skeptical and much more demanding, except in this right in this stage that we're in with regard to CBD rich products. And we should be skeptical. We should demand these, the certificate of analysis. It's interesting. There's a, a lot of games being played today as it relates to, to certificates of analysis or COAs, as we call them. They're very creative and they're very disruptive and they're very dangerous in our part, in our, in our opinions. Our team, myself, we are constantly evaluating other products and other companies at the behest of our, of our clinicians and our patients. And there are, there's just a couple of little tricks that are played have to do with, for example, kind of a one sample for all. 
So it's not uncommon that a company will say on their website, we've got a COA and here's a sample of, here's a COA for one of our samples. And that'll be true, but it's not a COA for the product that you're buying. And to Isaac's point, if you really understand how this product is harvested and processed, you understand that every harvest is different and that it's critical that you are testing every single harvest and that you're testing every single batch and that you're testing the final product and not testing the raw material. So I've just given you maybe three or four inferences there of the shortcuts that people take to mislead. Frankly, they are misleading the public. Creative COAs are another, uh, another fairly common practice where they will take different analysis from different tests and they'll lump them together on one piece of paper for one product. And the dates don't match, the batches don't match. But again, at this early stage in this industry, are, are we asking clinicians, are we asking patients to get a much higher IQ to protect their health and to, to have a greater level of scrutiny as it relates to the products they're buying? Yes, we are. And then we, we also talked about the fact that some people uh, have their own party. They, they test their own products. Probably one of the most popular brands in the world, which was acquired by another company uh, last year, has ceased getting third-party tests and they run their own tests today. So there are tricks that are played with something as simple of a certificate of analysis. One of my favorites, which I, I mean, uh, obviously in a negative way, <laughs> is that they, they say, we've got, a, we've got a certificate of analysis. And when you go to check the certificate of analysis, whether you're clicking online uh, or, or following a, a, a QR code, number one, when you get to the certificate of analysis, it's only got one test, maybe two tests of the six. So are they telling the truth that they've got all, I've got a COA? Sure they do. But where the heck are the other tests? And, and frankly, that pesticide test is missing in a lot of cases for, for, for reasons that, service, that serve the interests of the company. They, they ran the test. The results came back. They may have passed it for their state. But again, how, how many of us would want heavy metals? How many of us would want mold? Even if it's okay, it meets the state standard. How many of us would put that in our body? We wouldn't. And so that's one of the games they play. And then, and then one of my uh, another another very common one is they'll they'll give you a QR code reader. You download the QR code reader into your phone. You you move it past the label, and then at least fifty percent of the time you get a, a message back that says product not found. These are tricks that mislead. And that's why we come back to the importance of making sure that if, if you're going to buy a CBD-rich product, that it meets this require the second requirement of testing transparency on the label. All right. Anything else on testing and labels? This is powerful medicine here, as it were. I I, I got to move on. See, I got the word in. I can I can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Look. Let me, just, let me just ask a question. It's complete neophyte. Something that came through while I was preparing for the uh, discussions I had with your with the leadership team. What does it mean to be full spectrum, 0% THC? Like, what is that? No such thing. There is no such thing as full spectrum with 0% THC. We run into this all the time. You know, we're full spectrum. We're we're, we're THC free. You'll actually see it on the same label. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's extremely frustrating. And, and we know that the product, that the plant, that the flower specifically, that the resin that has the cannabinoids and the flavonoids and the terpenes in it, that they work together to create this entourage effect where it's, you know, when nature created this plan, it created a team play. It did not create an isolate, it did not create a single compound. It works uh, in the human, in our endocannabinoid system that every vertebrate has. It works as a team to attach to the receptors to balance the cell in homeostasis. So it's, those are competing claims. And I, I'd certainly defer to Isaac, but I think as the FDA gets more educated and involved in this industry that those types of, of claims are, are just going to have to die. And again, just full spectrum, right? The concept of full means whole or complete or everything. And that's what that word means in our language. So you can't have whole or complete except for this one thing. 
that's no longer whole or complete. That's something different. And in fact, in the cannabis industry, that's usually referred to as broad spectrum because broad does not require completeness. The products that are THC free are then usually referred to as broad spectrum. And the challenge with THC free, in fact, there's several, one, there's always a loss when you remove something from a set of other things. There's just, there's no way around that, right? You cannot perfectly just remove one component in a complex set of things. Anytime that you make a broad spectrum extract by removing THC, you can get really close, but you can't get down to where you have 100% just removed the THC from that product. So that's the first part. And, and so that's where we have full spectrum and broad spectrum. But let's ask the question, why would you want broad spectrum versus full spectrum? People will say, oh, I don't want any THC because I, I drug test. And I don't want any THC because it's going to get me high. The first thing to realize is that you can, C-A-N, fail a drug test if you only take CBD. So broad spectrum is not going to protect you if what you're trying to do is to avoid failing a drug test. The second part, if you don't want to get high, if you're consuming a CBD-rich product that has 10 to 1 milligrams of CBD to THC, right? So if you've got 10 milligrams of CBD, it would contain one milligram of THC. Or if you had 20 milligrams of CBD, it would contain two milligrams of THC. It's literally impossible to get high in that scenario because the CBD and the THC bind to the same receptors in your body and if you take them at the same time, the CBD is going to negatively impact the THC. It's effectively going to negate it, right? So there is no advantage either from to not getting high or to passing a drug test by using a broad spectrum product. So if you look at full spectrum, full spectrum requires THC because to this date, we don't have any hemp plants that are high in CBD that have zero THC. We might one day, but it doesn't exist today. And so anytime you're looking at a real full spectrum extract, there's always going to be some THC in it. And the the thing is, so we've got this definition of 0.3% THC by dry volume but and and so that would be hemp but if you have a product that is actually zero thc it's definitely not full spectrum it is at best broad spectrum and again just to be absolutely clear if your intention to take a thc free cbd product is to not fail a drug test you are not guaranteed to pass that and in fact you should not use any cbd products from anyone at all May I ask a question here, Isaac? Do you think that the the, the drug testing, because I did came from the world of forensics, and people do get worried about a urine THCA positive. Honestly, I'm just wondering at 0.03%, are people worried about long-term use of 0.03% to actually maybe trigger a screening test? I mean, I can't imagine 0.03% triggering a GCMS positive. Great question. It, 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 it's a great question, and the answer is really more complicated. The problem isn't necessarily that there's a buildup of THC that's going to cause you to fail the test. The issue is the equipment itself. There is old equipment out there that's being used to do drug tests that cannot differentiate between CBD and THC. As an employee being tested by an employer, if they hire a lab that has that old equipment, you can, you can contest it, but the first thing that's gonna happen is you're gonna fail your drug test, even though you may have literally never in your life consumed THC. The second thing 
is that because of the FDA stance, I think it's three or four arms of the United States military service are specifically testing for CBD and have now added a positive for CBD as a failure of your drug test. Holy smokes. Okay. <laughs> In summary, the, these three arms of the military, they, on the one hand, they're basically saying, if you test positive for CBD, we're going to treat it like THC, which is a schedule one drug. And therefore, you're out immediately, dismissal, right? And and on the other hand, you've got the FDA, which recently approved Epidiolex from GW Pharmaceuticals and is not on any schedule. It's completely descheduled and it is derived from cannabis. So what we're seeing is on the one hand, we see some progress and some 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 shifts that are that are paving the way for what we believe is the kind of market that, that we want to have. Uh, on the other hand, people, especially who are affiliated with the military, whether they're contractors or otherwise, have to be very careful about that. And that's that has a material that could have a material impact on their livelihood. Dang. Wow. So I <laughs> so I'm sorry, but I'm feeling that there has to be a change in the drug testing standards if you can't determine the difference between CBD and THCA. I mean. I'm finding it quite surprising that it's still happening, even at 2020, but whatever. There are actually a lot of lawsuits going on right now, because if you work in a state like Colorado, where CBD use is absolutely 100% legal, and you have an employer that terminates your employment because you use a CBD product, that ends in a lawsuit. And in fact, if you do a quick search, you you'll see that right now there are many lawsuits going on from employers against uh, employees and employees against employers. And so right now there's a ton of case law that is going on that is going to determine the changes for the situation you're describing. But uh, right now it's just ongoing. Okay. Okay. Because I've figured you're going to see that have to change at some point if you can't make the determination or if they're not doing it properly. Yes. And, and, and here's the real controversial part, right? So hemp is federally legal, right? Though ingesting it is not yet necessarily federally legal. But if you're using THC from hemp which is by definition not a schedule 1 drug it's explicitly not and you fail a test how can the failure of that drug test be legal you know the irony william of this conversation too is that medicinally speaking and the early research is extremely promising as it relates to terpenes is that we are caught up we are we are seeing the aircraft carrier turn. It will just take 17 concentric miles for it to change direction, right? For over a period of time. And that's, that's not a scientific estimate. That's just me being silly here. But it's going to take time from a regulatory perspective to really get to alignment as it relates to this in the branches of government. But the terpenes are, are increasingly, as it relates to the research, becoming the topic of focus. And the irony there is that in today's world, that companies, again, talking about shortcuts and the importance of a clinician-grade standard, companies are replacing cannabis terpenes with what we call proxy terpenes or fake terpenes, terpenes from vegetables, from other plants, from fruits. Not only are those fake terpenes extremely inexpensive to buy, they're easy to put in the extract, but they do not, again, they do not contribute to the efficacy of the original fruit because they're not supposed to be there. It's kind of like putting football helmets on 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 hockey players and and lining them up for the Super Bowl. They may they may look like the other football players, but they're not going to know how to run the play and they're going to cause a lot of confusion and who knows, somebody could really get hurt. And that's in fairness to both sports. <laughs> I'm just saying that you can't put fake terpenes into this product and yet the, on the labels it will say terpenes but they will not disclose that they are failing to put cannabis terpene into the product and in coming back to isaac's point 
it's much more expensive, not only to have terpenes in the product, but to put them in the product, the process itself. So it's with all due respect to the debate about THC and and how important it is to have that in the product to make sure we have maximum efficacy. Important as well to know that you need to have cannabis, hemp-derived cannabis terpenes in the product, not fake terpenes. All right. So we've walked right up to a topic, Isaac, that you and I talked about. And that is uh, what stuck in my mind was that sort of a, a methodological or a philosophical difference between what certainly I've come to know and trust as drugs from, from pharmaceutical companies and w- w- what they look for or don't look for and why should there be any sort of medicinal properties here, which has, hasn't been proven, why, why they won't look here. There's a, there's a difference in philosophy. For a pharmaceutical company to make back the $2.3 billion investment that it takes today to take something from concept to market and to go through that whole process, they need to know when they get to the other side, if they're successful, that they're the only ones in the world that can make it. And that starts at the front of the race, having something that nobody else in the world has. And then at the end of the race, having legal protections in place so that people can't just make whatever it is in their garage. And so that really drives that whole approach. What we have here, on the other hand, is an extract from a plant that's been used for thousands of years. So you can't give it that level of protection because it's already in the public domain. And for if you ask yourself the question, if you can't protect it at that level, why would you spend the effort to develop it to prove that it works? And so what we're proposing is actually a different paradigm for solving that problem. And even the paradigm for the economics behind that problem. But that's just one component of the difference. So, so they're doing something completely different than this holistic approach. The patent regime, uh, the rules we have to protect intellectual property, support a certain type of analysis. And that's necessary to support the incredible... I mean, there's wonders of science going on here, right? We're talking about that are very expensive. And, and so th- that works very well for those sorts of substances, that, that those sorts of uh, drugs. It, it just doesn't work here. It's a different economic and legal approach that binds the way that innovation can happen. How'd I do? You did great. And I'm going to add, I'm just going to tack on, you know, the next step, which is because that system is also designed to protect those activities from competitors that are using things in the public domain. Which is, which is a pretty standard behavior we see in lots of industries. There's one other institutional barrier that, that I wanted to mention really briefly, and that is, again, we, we work with and partner with and, and talk with clinicians every day, all day. And, and we, it's very clear to us that they have the best of intentions. They are brilliant people. They're altruistically driven. They, they want to heal. However, the education that they have spent so many years getting and so much money obtaining did not provide them with education as it relates to cannabis science. And for all the obvious reasons, right? It was against the law. We know that medical schools are largely um, offset. Their budgets are offset, subsidized by pharmaceutical companies. When you look at the chair of a, various chairs and a very in a medical school, those are the, the different chairs that are named after certain brands or certain certain products, many of which are opioids, opiates. But the, what I'm trying to suggest to you is that there's a learning process that's happening right now in the medical community, and that learning process, especially for functional docs and docs who aren't his sort, you know, who aren't as tied to to what we'd call evidence based medicine or Western medicine, or the docs that are really understanding that the human body is so amazing and its interaction with plants is something that's just being understood. And that if you really want to talk about sources of pain and anxiety rather than symptoms, the discussions about how plant-based medicine can, can help them are tremendous. But I, I think it's, it's worth noting that when a patient like, like Jim or others go and ask their doctors about CBD-rich products, 
it's going to be often an answer that says, I don't know. And it's not because they don't want to know. It's because they've really been educated to not know. And there are enlightened doctors who will respond and say, I think we should go with this. Let's try this and let's monitor this. But they're open because they're focused on the healing process. But with respect to clinicians of all kinds, they're wonderful people who want to heal. And they're understanding one at a time that by virtue of not only this clinician grade standard, but by virtue of this amazing body of research that's now emancipated from the regulatory shackles that have been around for so long, that it is uh, the promise of the plant is, is extraordinary. And I will tell you from my experience in talking directly with clinicians, that they are over the moon at the, the promise of not having to prescribe a medicine that doesn't have harmful side effects. Let me ask, yeah, may I jump in really quick? You know what? I never once really, I kept my cannabis juice really close to my chest. And, and I really didn't even tell a lot of people. And I'm wondering that may have been a mistake in the sense that maybe I should have been more upfront and talking to my doctors. I just eventually one day after I got to a certain dosage, I just like, oh, all right, I'll tell them I'm taking CBD and some THC. I don't know if that was out of, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where that lack of desire to communicate or why it was fear driven or what, but I think that discussion needs to start happening with, if I'm talking next time I talk to my gastro or whatever, to be more talking about this, you know, the CBD and the hemp. I wish I would have had him more on board. I don't know if he would have helped out a lot, but I think my way of doing it was probably not the best way. And I think Isaac has mentioned this to me that maybe we should start getting the doctors on board and get them telling them, this is what I'm using, you know? And I never thought of that before until probably last week, last, well, last couple of months, you know? And I know it's funny because I didn't like kept it really close. Like I was doing something slightly illegal, but I really wasn't. So I don't know why I did that way. I was just trained that way from all my years in forensics. You're bringing up a really great point. <laughs> the way our society is structured today, we know, for example, that the Arthritis Foundation did a survey of its members and 67% of the people in their membership that suffer from arthritis are either using or considering using CBD right now. Now, that survey, when, when you speak to them directly, their doctors probably think that they aren't. And as you mentioned, Jim, they're afraid to talk to their doctors about it. To me, that's a huge issue. If people are going to be using things to try to treat serious illnesses, they absolutely need to involve their doctors in the conversation. They need to involve them for safety. They need to involve them for figuring out if it's working. And if there's some benefit to them, but they shouldn't be left trying to figure it out on their own when they have a healthcare provider that is already working with them and in some ways is already taking some responsibility for their health. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I wish I I wish I could explain what this feeling is when I didn't started with it. I really kind of kept it quiet from even friends, you know, and it's just kind of funny. But now I view it as medication and see it as just medication and it helps. So now I'm like this advocate almost, you know, if anybody comes up and talks to me on my street, I'm advocating and helping them out and how to look for products and how to, you know, just go about trying it out and not be afraid, you know? I think just to add to that, I think, Jim, that, you know, not, I'm no psychologist, but I, I can relate to you and I know you. And I, and I think generally speaking that if we don't, it, you probably didn't mention it more, more vocally and broadly because you didn't know that a, a foundation like the Arthritis Foundation had already stamped this thing as free to talk about and that it had already measured that there's, there's a broad, there's a majority of people who are already trying this or looking to try this because over 90% of Americans suffer from chronic pain. I, I, I think now it's, it's not a closet conversation. It's just in this process of moving from the stigma of history to the current enigma because there's lack of education and more research. Even though there's over 20,000 papers published, there's over 5,000 research projects published we're moving from stigma to enigma ultimately to where it will be open medicine. And I, so I don't think you should feel any guilt about that. I, th I think it's, 
it's in a process. But to, to Isaac's point, you know, we're shouting from the tops of the houses um, that are right next to the clinician offices that this is something that needs to be discussed and that they need to be aware of. And, and then I will ask one more question. And this is a good one because you'll have a lot of people out there that may want to know how to find information. Are there, is there a good place to read? Maybe you'll understand just the simple botany of the plant. It's something you can, you know, the 101 version of this stuff. So I feel like for me, that's where I'm at now. I feel since over the last maybe month or two, my desire to actually understand the medication and how it affects me and how to tweak it for me is the journey I'm on right now. I'm just really trying to find more information that quality, but not so in depth. I feel like I'm taking a college class, <laughs> you know? So that's kind of what I was wondering if there are sources that you guys would even suggest as people try to look and, and get answers and, and do that. I, I think it's fascinating just to observe that your, your background is in forensics, in science, as, as someone who administered testing, you have that context to be on this journey of evaluating different products and different treatments. And in the context of your own conditions that you've, your GI conditions that you've treated, you come to a good place. But I think your opinion is extremely important. And I think your observations are spot on. So there is a specific title. And for the record, we are not associated with the author or their company or any of their products, but it is CBD, a patient's guide to medicinal cannabis healing without the high. It's an easy read. It's very well researched and it's highly regarded in the industry. There's a secondary publication as well you could consider called The Road to Ananda. And it's the subtitle, Simple Guide to Endocannabinoid System, Hemp, Phytocannabinoids, CBD, and Your Health. And uh, they are uh, they're, they're both publications. I can tell you in the training curriculum that we have for our, for our company that both of these texts are required reading. One is gives you again that, that patient perception perception and understanding of, of how the medicine works. The road to Ananda is really kind of more bent toward the scientific approach. If you've got uh, a clinician or a doctor that you'd like to, to help learn more, we tend to bend toward that that audience for that that book. But both are awesome. So I think that brings us to a pretty good place. Uh, again, this is a, a conclusion to several hours of other great podcasting that's out there for you. I encourage you listeners, if you want more information, go get it. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for investing the time. This is exciting stuff. Thanks. See you.